Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 20, Daniel, chapter 7, the second continuation. From my perspective, we can only have a credible study of the book of Daniel by focusing carefully on the Son of Man statement in Daniel 7.13. However, as we discussed last week, the preference among modern Bible scholars is not to spend much time on that subject. So we have few studies available on the book of Daniel that it goes much beyond focusing on those several strange beasts, the prophecy of the 70 weeks, Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and Daniel in the lion's den. So to try to add to the dialogue and the understanding of Daniel, we spent all last week discussing three critical Old Testament terms that will in time form the foundation of the New Testament. Messiah, Son of Man, and Son of God. Today we're going to spend some time in the New Testament, so keep those Bibles handy. Once again, I feel it necessary to acknowledge Daniel Boyerine, Taubman Scholar of Talmudic Culture at Cal Berkeley. His knowledge of the Holy Scriptures, coupled with his near unmatchable research into the Talmud, has produced many intriguing questions, and even a few answers, about the relationship between early Judaism and New Testament theological concepts. And at least partly due to his work, I have felt challenged to better understand the role of the Son of Man figure in ancient Jewish culture before and during and after Yeshua's day, and then how it relates to the New Testament and then to end times. Now a great deal of information was thrown at you at our last meeting. Therefore, we need to spend a short time to briefly summarize last week's lesson so we can all start off on level ground. And that summary must begin with the premise that despite what we will hear from orthodox, traditional, and conservative Judaism today, in fact, many of the concepts that they find so blasphemous, so upsetting, within the New Testament regarding both the nature and the identification of the Messiah, in fact those concepts existed front and center in mainstream Judaism for scores of years leading up to Yeshua's birth. And they existed in parallel with the time that Yeshua walked this earth and those same ideas continued on after his execution. So several of these important theological concept, concepts that are typically labeled as for Gentile Christians only weren't at all foreign to Judaism at one time, nor were they introduced by Gentiles. On the other side of that wall of separation, Christians and, and Messianics have assumed, along with the traditional Jewish religious establishment, that nowhere and at no time in Judaism did the idea of the triune God exist. 
nor thoughts of the next Davidic king, the hoped-for Messiah, as being divine, nor that he would be killed and then resurrected. Therefore, the long-held and unchallenged Judeo-Christian storyline is that these theological concepts were a combination of brand new inventions and a progressive revelation that came about only with the New Testament's Hebrew authors. However, in point of historical fact, these thoughts and concepts were already widespread in Jewish culture and most of it existed because of the appeal and faith that was placed in the book of Daniel by not only the well-educated Jewish elite but also by the common everyday Jewish farmers and fishermen and craftsmen. Now one of the questions that any believer in Christ ought to have whether we would label ourselves as Christian or Messianic, is why so many thousands of Jews found it relatively easy to accept Yeshua as divine Messiah, Redeemer, Davidic King. How was that possible? Listen to Acts 21, verses 17 through 20. In Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Saul and the rest of us went into Jacob. In this case, in English, the word is James. And all the elders were present. And after greeting them, Paul described in detail each of the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his efforts. And on hearing it, they praised God. But they also said to him, Do you see, brother, how many tens of thousands of believers there are among the Judeans? And they're all zealots for the Torah. See, now, although most English Bibles don't make the distinction, there is a difference between Judeans and Jews. Judeans were Jewish folks who lived in the Roman province of Judea as opposed to Galileans who lived in Galilee. And Judea was where Jerusalem and the Jewish religious leadership resided. Jews is just a generic term for any person living anywhere of Jewish heritage. And Judeans in Paul's era were the hardcore Jews of that era. Much the equivalent of today's Orthodox Jews. And the Judean Jews clung tightly to their traditions, to their rabbis. And this passage, passage in Acts says that throngs and throngs of hardcore Judean Jews believed that Yeshua was the Messiah. See, we tend to focus on and speak about the many more Jews who didn't accept Him, but that's not where the real story lies. Was this acceptance, this widespread acceptance of Yeshua by so many Jews because they were awed and swayed by as many miracles? In that case, Houdini might have been more easily accepted than Yeshua. 
No, it's because Yeshua embodied the flesh and blood fulfillment of a rather common expectation that a large segment of the Jewish population held. But certainly at least an equal amount disagreed with it. And that common expectation was almost entirely bound up in Daniel's vision of this mysterious Son of Man being. So while I'm going to repeat it again during our lesson, I'll say it now. The New Testament, the identity of the Christ, what the Jewish people expected and what Yeshua did was based perhaps more on Daniel than any other single source in the Old Testament. If Daniel is false, then Yeshua was not only completely taken in by it, he was little more than another in a long list of Jews running around with a Messiah complex. But he was no Messiah. Let me also state something so that some may not get the wrong idea and think I'm telling you something I'm not. Yeshua is certainly divine. He is God's only begotten Son, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is our Savior. He is God. I'm taking you <coughs> pardon me, on this long journey to achieve a number of goals. One of which is to familiarize you with other Christian theologies that you might have never heard of before. But in fact, those theologies and doctrines about God and about Christ, they're just as mainstream as whatever it is that you might believe. Another goal is for us to look at the Jewish side of the equation and to explain the modern Jewish viewpoint of the Messiah and why Yeshua is so nearly unanimously rejected today as that Messiah. But also to show you that this modern viewpoint and the typical spin that's put on it by institutional Judaism is simply not intellectually honest. Nor is it accurate. Nor does it reflect what a large segment of Jewish scholars and rabbis, Jewish religious leaders and lay people believed and wrote it down and taught in the years leading up to and even after Christ's advent. So with that, let's quickly go over those biblical terms Messiah, Son of Man, and Son of God and establish what they meant to the Jewish culture in which they were conceived, in which they were debated. Messiah is not a translation of Hebrew Mashiach. Rather, it's just an English-sized way of saying Mashiach, Mashiach, Messiah. The direct Greek translation of Mashiach is Christos. And from that, the English word Christ comes. Christos, take off the OS, you get Christ. So Messiah, Mashiach, Christos, Christ, they're identical terms. And they mean anointed one. Anointed one was a term applied to all kings 
of Israel and Judah. And the term Christ or Messiah standing alone had no divine quality or intended meaning to it whatsoever. The term Son of God up until the time of the New Testament Gospels did not mean a person who had a divine or a deified quality to them. Son of God did not mean deity any more than did the term Messiah. Rather, it reflected a scriptural principle that all kings of Israel and Judah had an adoptive father-son relationship with the God of Israel in the spiritual sense. And I delved into this extensively last week with scriptural references so you can review it on your own. Further, since God made the decision to have all kings of Israel and Judah beginning with King David to come from King David's royal bloodline, then the term the Son of God naturally evolved to indicate only a Davidic king. Since, from David forward, that was the only legitimate source of kings that was even possible for Israel. Thus, up until the time of the Gospels, the term Son of God was referring to a human mortal descendant of King David. One who was eligible to become a king of the Jews. Nothing more and nothing less. The term the Son of Man was a rather common one used in the Bible beginning in the Torah. The Hebrew words are Ben Adam. Ben means son or child. And Adam means man. So a good dynamic English translation for our 21st century time is human being. Now let me be clear. There is no direct Hebrew word or phrase that literally translates to human being in the Bible. But the intent of the Hebrew Ben Adam is just to communicate a regular, generic human person. However, beginning with the Psalms, a veiled implication of a specific person, a unique Ben Adam, who was more than a human being, was conceived. And then with Daniel 7.13, the Son of Man became, for the first time, the source for Son of Man to be used as an official title for this implied person who was more than human. And then with Daniel 7, some additional information about this being's attributes and characteristics arise. The Son of Man comes in the heavenly clouds. He's seated next to the Ancient of Days. He is given all power and glory and honor and dominion over the earth, over all of its inhabitants. He's given this power by the Ancient One. He's eternal. He will rule over a kingdom that will never be destroyed. As opposed to those four Gentile kingdoms symbolized by Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue and Daniel's vision of the four beasts, 
that would be destroyed. Now I mentioned last week that this term, the Son of Man, is used over 80 times in the New Testament by Yeshua to refer to himself and by some of his followers to refer to him. And so I can tell you without hesitation that Yeshua adopted Daniel's term, the Son of Man, for himself. Because Daniel's Son of Man title, as it turned out, was prophetic of Yeshua. See, let me say that a different way. Jesus did not coin the term Son of Man. Son of Man was a 500 year old existing term within Judaism that was widely known and that its source was the popular book of Daniel. And as I've demonstrated in previous lessons, many sayings of Christ even came from terminology used by the essence of Qumran, the people of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this shouldn't bother us at all. Why wouldn't Yeshua use the terms of his day to explain who he, who he was, why he came, what he was teaching? It would be folly to do otherwise. Because who would have understood him if daily he was inventing new concepts, new theology, new terms and phrases, or giving them entirely new meanings. No. For the most part, he was merely saying he was the one whom the Torah and the prophets had been pointing to and that Daniel had spoken of as the one like the Son of Man. Now let's set that thought on the back burner for just a few minutes. What I want to show you is that there were many Jews who fully expected the Son of Man as a divine being to come as the Messiah, but who did not know of or who did not accept that Yeshua of Nazareth was that one. And in the non-biblical books of 1st Enoch and 4th Ezra, we find some astounding proof that the concept of a divine but also a human redeemer who bears the title of son of man was widespread in Jewish culture even outside that segment of Judaism that had already accepted Yeshua as the Christ now written sometime in the second century BC a Jewish religious leader who lived in Alexandria, Egypt wrote this and I quote I had a vision of a great throne on the top of Mount Sinai and it reached till the fold of heaven. A nobleman was sitting on it with a crown and a large scepter in his left hand. He beckoned me to come with his right hand. So I approached and stood before the throne and he gave me the scepter, instructed me to sit on the great throne. Then he gave me the royal crown and he got up from the throne. See, the person being spoken of is Moses. And essentially the idea is of him going atop Mount Sinai where he meets God and then is essentially turned into deity. Now we can debate about how fanciful this is. But the point is that here 
is a widely circulated, a widely accepted piece of authoritative Jewish literature from at least 150 years before Jesus was born, which envisions a human being, in this case Moses, meeting with God on high, being anointed as divine, and then being given God's power, even sitting on God's throne. So the concept of a God-man operating alongside the Ancient of Days, this was well established within the Jewish religion. It was nothing new when Yeshua of Nazareth arrived and eventually claimed that title. However, there is another ancient Jewish document that addresses the Son of Man as a divine human even more head-on in another widely circulated and trusted book called The Similitudes of Enoch. A Jewish writer who was writing, oh, perhaps a decade or so before the time of the New Testament Gospels says this in his chapter 46. Quote, there I saw one who had a head of days and his head was like white wool. With him was another whose face was like the appearance of a man and his face was full of graciousness like one of the holy angels. And I asked the angel of peace who went with me and showed me all the hidden things about that son of man. Who he was when he was, why he went with the head of days. And he answered me and said to me, This is the Son of Man who has righteousness. So here is an obvious reference to Daniel 7. We have two divine figures. One is the head of days, another way of saying the ancient of days. The other is the Son of Man. So the idea and speculation was widespread in Jewish culture during and well before Christ's day about a son of man coming who would be human and divine. And this God-man was also wrapped up in the expected Messiah Redeemer of Israel. So any thought of modern Judaism that the Messiah must be fully human and that the Christian doctrine that Yeshua was a God-man is based on idolatry and it's a blasphemous concept and that Jews never thought of this dual God concept or really a tri-God because the Jews also fully embraced the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh as a manifestation of the God of Israel. This simply defies Jewish religious history and the writings of the rabbis in antiquity. It's there. Essentially, modern Judaism has repudiated the older and at one time mainstream Jewish expectation of a divine human Messiah that was typical of Judaism at least a century before Yeshua was born and continued to exist all during and after his lifetime. And because the Jews of Christ's day were hoping for a divine son of man to come, a king, redeemer, deliverer from Roman oppression, 
They were as much into end times prophecy and expectations and especially speculations as is the modern institutional church in our day. Apocalyptic literature was all the rage. Daniel was the most studied and debated. Those ancient Jews firmly believed they were living during the end times in the same way that believers do in the 21st century. And just as the book of Revelation is the modern Christian's primary source for end times expectations, so was the book of Daniel the primary source for Judaism's end times expectations in the years leading up to and during and after the advent of Christ. Now perhaps this is impacting you the way I hope it is. For Christians, we need to understand that, as we're going to soon see, the Son of Man did not speak of Jesus' human quality. Rather, it was of His divine quality. And the various terms that we read in the New Testament that are used regarding Yeshua, such as Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, and others, these all had very specific cultural meaning within Jewish society. So that's precisely how we need to understand them. Not just in any way that suits our purposes. And that's so that we can more fully understand the New Testament as it was intended. For our Jewish brothers and sisters, especially those of you who are Messianic, you see, when you have faith in your Messiah, Yeshua, in fact, you're not embracing idolatrous, non-Jewish, Gentile-created doctrines that first came about after Christ's death on the cross, as is commonly supposed. Rather, you are embracing mainstream Jewish concepts that were fully expected of the Messiah a long time before Jesus was born. So as I quoted to you as the first words of my last lesson, all that Messianic Jews and Christians are doing when we choose to embrace and rediscover our Hebrew roots is to return to a well-entrenched, conservative, scriptural Hebrew theology of a divine redeemer. A divine redeemer who is fully man and fully God. And this was a widespread throughout Jewish society well over 2,000 years ago. Did all Jews embrace it? Of course not. But there's probably not one single theological concept that's universally embraced within Judaism or within Christianity. Not one I can think of. Well, let's look now and how this new, and perhaps for some of you merely more in-depth, understanding of the concept of the Son of Man, let's see how this impacts our understanding of Yeshua HaMashiach and the New Testament. Turn your Bibles to the book of Mark and chapter 2. Book of Mark and chapter 2. 
Mark chapter 2. We're going to read verses 5 through 12. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, this is going to begin on page 1264. Seeing their trust, Yeshua said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And some Torah teachers sitting there thought to themselves, How can this fellow say such a thing? He's blaspheming. Who can, who can forgive sins except God? But immediately, Yeshua, perceiving in his spirit what they were thinking, said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or get up, pick up your stretcher, and walk? But look! I prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Here is Yeshua speaking of Himself as the Son of Man. Now let me say again for emphasis, Son of Man was a title first given in Daniel 7. And let's look one more time at the introduction and the attributes of this Son of Man as described by Daniel. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14 it says this, I kept watching the night visions when I saw coming with the clouds of heaven someone like a Son of Man. He approached the Ancient One and he was led into his presence and to him was given rulership and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His rulership is an eternal rulership that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Yeshua claims in Mark 2 that he is Daniel's son of man and as such he has the authority to forgive sins. Who gave him that authority? The Ancient of Days. God. And just as Daniel 7 makes it clear, the Son of Man is a divine person. Deity. So everyone surrounding Jesus totally understood what he was saying. He was saying, look, I can forgive sins because I'm divine. Because the Father has given me the authority to forgive sins. See, the Torah teachers who accused Yeshua of blasphemy could only accuse Him of that because by using the term Son of Man, He had just declared Himself to be divine. He, had He merely said that He was the Messiah, follow me on this, had he only said, I'm the Messiah, well, they may have contested him on that point, but saying he is the Messiah is not blasphemy. Because it merely means he's declaring himself as that new anointed king, Davidic king of Israel. Which would have merely been more of a political, less a religious issue. Now let's look a little bit further down the page of Mark 2. Go to verse 23 and let's read another story that we all know so well about Yeshua. Starting in verse 23, we'll go through verse 27. One Shabbat, 
Yeshua was passing through some wheat fields. And as they went along, his Talmudim, his disciples, began picking heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look! Why are they violating Shabbat? And he said to them, Haven't you ever read what David did when he and those with him were hungry and they needed food? He entered the house of God. When Aviatar was the Kohen Gadol, the head priest, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is forbidden for anyone to eat but the priests, and even gave some of it to his companions. And then he said to them, Shabbat was made for mankind, not mankind for Shabbat. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Shabbat, the Sabbath. Now, while there are several theological and doctrinal implications in these few verses, the main thing I want to focus on is whereby Yeshua says that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Shabbat, even of the Sabbath. So without going into details of the arguments about Sabbath, what Christ is saying is that as the divine Son of Man on earth, He's the one who decides what is and what isn't appropriate on the Sabbath. In no way does this mean He's saying, well, now that I've come... Now that I've come, I've come to abolish the scriptural commandments about Sabbath, so now you people can go do anything you want. Rather, he's teaching what he meant when he was still in heaven operating as the Word, before he was incarnate as Yeshua of Nazareth, the Son of Man. And that Word was first given to Moses on Mount Sinai concerning, among other things, Shabbat, the Sabbath. So here I want to take another opportunity to prove to you that what Christ was teaching and preaching was not some new radical thought, some thought that was foreign to the Jewish religion. Rather, he was merely in disagreement with a certain group, maybe groups, of religious Jews who had created their own traditions about the Sabbath. And they were attempting to impose those traditions on others. That group is here identified as the Pharisees, who were some of the Torah teachers in Israel. And in this instance, they specifically objected to what? to Yeshua's disciples plucking heads of grain and eating them on Shabbat. For in fact, the idea that Shabbat had this long list of restrictions and um, prohibitions, that's not scriptural. But rather, that's merely man-made traditions. The biblical restrictions were and are few And further, they're not nearly as rigid as some might think. There were circumstances where strictest observance of Sabbath rules was trumped by overriding circumstances. And that reality was well entrenched in Jewish culture. 
and among Jewish religious leadership. So I'm going to give you now a fascinating, although rather typical, Jewish rabbinical debate over the Sabbath. This debate is found in the Talmud, Mekilta Tractate Shabbat 1. Now please listen carefully. Don't get caught up in the names because it's not important to my point. But listen to this carefully. It's really fascinating. Rabbi Ishmael and Rabbi Eleazar, the son of Azariah, and Rabbi Akiva were walking on the way. And Levi Hasadar and Rabbi Ishmael, son of Rabbi Eleazar, son of Azariah, were walking behind them. And the question arose among them, from whence do we know that the saving of a life supersedes Sabbath? And Rabbi Ishmael answered, Behold, it says, if a thief is caught breaking in and is is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if that happens after sunrise, he is guilty of bloodshed. And this is true even if we're not sure whether he came to kill or only to steal. Now the reasoning is from the light to the heavy. Call Vomer. Just as the killing of a person pollutes the land and it pushes the divine presence away and this supersedes the Sabbath in such a case as one caught at night breaking and entering, even more so is it the saving of a life. Rabbi Eleazar spoke up with a different answer. Well, just as circumcision, which saves only one member of a person, supersedes the Sabbath, the entire body even more so. Rabbi Akiva says if a murderer supersedes the temple worship which supersedes the Sabbath saving a life even more so Rabbi Yossi Hagalili says when it says but keep my Shabbats the word but makes a distinction there are Sabbaths that you push aside And there are those that you keep, such as when a human life is at stake. This supersedes Shabbat. Rabbi Shimon, the son of Manasseh, says, Behold, it says, keep the Shabbat because it's holy to you. To you the Shabbat is delivered, not you to the Shabbat. Rabbi Natan says, it says, and the children of Israel kept the Sabbath to keep the Sabbath for their generations. Profane one Shabbat for the sick person in order that he may keep many more Shabbats. Now, this debate about the Sabbath among these revered rabbis, let me tell you, it couldn't be any more Jewish than this. Yet the typical Jewish accusation against Jesus in Mark 2 is that he's making the most un-Jewish of argument about what's lawful and what is not on Shabbat. And in turn, we have so much of Christianity saying that here Yeshua is laying aside the Jewishness of the Shabbat, if not the ordinance of Shabbat itself. In fact, what we see in the Talmud is that Rabbi Shimon is advocating almost identically 
What Christ advocates about, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? So are we to say that Rabbi Shimon is suggesting that the Sabbath has been abolished? Well, of course not. See, the issue, like with Yeshua, is simply what can and what cannot be done on Shabbat. The issue isn't whether Shabbat still exists. But just as importantly, we just heard several other viewpoints and nuances from these various rabbis about just how far one should go regarding saving of life if the circumstance occurs on a Sabbath. And of course, none of this involves changing, let alone doing away with Shabbat. Now, Rabbi Natan speaks of it being okay to heal a sick person on the Sabbath. Even if, technically, it might be actually profaning, committing a violation of the Shabbat. And he says that this is because it is better to heal that person, even if it might be against the Shabbat law, than it is to let them die. Because if they remain alive, then they can keep, they can properly observe, many more Sabbaths. So one aspect of Christ's argument in Mark 2 is that due to some unspoken circumstances, we're not told what it is, his disciples must not have pre-prepared food for Sabbath. And it is, I believe, a reasonable assumption that they weren't prepared because they were following their master doing something he wanted done. So, now it's Shabbat, they have no prepared food, and they're hungry. The theological principle in question, should they go hungry in order not to break Sabbath law, especially when they were doing God's work? They weren't cooking. They were only plucking, eating the grain as is. Yeshua says, no, they shouldn't go hungry. And this is because, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. However, even more importantly, as the Son of Man, the divine human, who it turns out is actually also the Lord of the Sabbath, He was given all authority over it. He is the Word of God who created all the laws of Moses. Then who better to say what the original intent and all the underlying principles of the Shabbat laws as given to Moses were than Yeshua? There is no higher authority. And naturally, these particular Pharisees weren't buying what Jesus was selling. But nonetheless, this is what Yeshua's message and intention amounted to. And further, these same sorts of debates over Shabbat and kosher eating and the Messiah and so much more, these were common among the Jewish religious leadership. And they're recorded for us in ancient Jewish documents, just like the one we just read from in the Talmud. 
Now what I've shown you today is that certain fundamental theological concepts and themes and controversies that we find in the New Testament Gospels are the same ones that are found in ancient Jewish rabbinical writings. They are organically connected. And especially as it concerns the revelation of the divine Messiah, Redeemer, it was the book of Daniel. It was his vision of the one like the Son of Man that for the Jews of Bible times provided the clues for identifying him. Oh, we have more New Testament scriptures to look at that are going to gain us additional insight, but we're going to save that for next time when we close out the study of Daniel chapter 7.